Welcome to Sleep Talk Snapshots, bringing you the latest on sleep from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington, a specialist sleep physician, and I hope you enjoyed these highlights from the Sleep Down Under 2018 meeting in Brisbane. The first topic that really opened the meeting was caffeine. So caffeine's the most widely used socially acceptable stimulant in modern societies. And data was presented that Australians average between 100 and 200 milligrams per day, which is the equivalent of one to two espresso shots per day of caffeine. The question was, does that actually help in reducing the sleepiness associated with sleep loss? As we uh, maintain sustained wakefulness, adenosine, increases and caffeine acts as an adenosine antagonist which can mitigate the cognitive performance impairment that's seen due to sleep loss. Now that's been shown in a number of acute sleep deprivation experiments where particularly on night one if people take doses of caffeine and sort of varying doses that performance lapses or the ability to maintain vigilance uh, those effects can largely be mitigated by caffeine. But then on the second night of total sleep deprivation, those effects, they're still there, but people begin to become impaired. There was some talk about whether caffeine can be used for shift workers or people that need to maintain sustained operations. And again, the data suggested that on night one of using caffeine, you can maintain performance. Moving on to other things, Ron Grunstein presented a great breakfast session on contemporary management of narcolepsy. A couple of the take-home points for me from that breakfast session was that although narcolepsy is often described as a rare disorder, and in fact there was a poster at the meeting describing it as a rare neurological disorder, in fact it's actually not that rare. So it's between 1 in 2,000 and 1 in 3,000 individuals, which makes it the fourth most common neurodegenerative disorder behind only multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. Of all these conditions, it's the one with the most localised and specific defect. So not as rare as sometimes we make out. Ron highlighted a recent paper that's important in how narcolepsy with cataplexy may develop as part of an autoimmune response. A lovely paper published by Latoritale in Nature uh, very recently showing that people with narcolepsy have unusually high levels of T-cells directed towards hypocretin or orexin, really supporting that notion that narcolepsy with cataplexy is an autoimmune disorder mediated by autoimmune destruction of orexin-producing nerve cells. In terms of treatment for narcolepsy, some of the new things that are on the horizon is solriamfetol, and the Phase 3 clinical trial results were presented at the Sleep 2018 meeting uh, back in June and showed improved uh, maintenance of wakefulness uh, test and the reduction in the Epworth sleepiness score of 4.5 points, which is a similar magnitude uh, to what's seen with either modafinil or dexamphetamine. Ron also talked about a clinical trial that's about to start in Australia of a once-nightly formulation of sodium oxabate, which would be a step forward for patients uh, with narcolepsy, both as it would mean people don't need to take a second dose of sodium oxabate during the night, but also we've shown to be effective in a phase three clinical trial in testing in Australia. This data could be used as part of an application to our TGA for it to become a registered product. I had the pleasure of being involved in a symposium on insomnia, where Nat Marshall outlined how insomnia has been 
managed uh, by the healthcare system in Australia over the last 15 years. And over that time, it's been reasonably stable that 1.5% of general practice encounters have been for insomnia. There was a slight drop in around 2007 with some of the controversy around Stillnox. And that also changed drug utilisation with a reduction in the use of Stillnox or Zolpidem. And around the same time, melatonin became available on the Australian market, so its utilisation has gradually increased, as has use of quetiapine, an atypical antipsychotic. However, the proportion of people on these medications is still uh, quite small, with around 50% of people in Australia treated with medications for insomnia taking temazepam. Interestingly, this is completely different from any other countries around the world and really looks to be a function of our reimbursement. As part of that same symposium, Professor Sean Drummond from Monash University talked about how we should be using cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. And his three key points were that cognitive behavioural therapy should be individualised, as it's important to incorporate particular components depending upon the precipitating and perpetuating factors in a given individual. His second point was that adherence to treatment is really the key. We know that cognitive behavioural therapy is an effective strategy and we know that medications can work for insomnia. But what we also know is that continuing through treatment, particularly with cognitive and behavioural therapy, takes a lot of work and there's a high dropout rate unless people are highly motivated. So we need to look at factors that might increase adherence. Uh, Sean's group has been doing some research at having partners involved in cognitive behavioural therapy, with part of the thinking behind this being that it will increase adherence. Sean's third point was that digital forms of cognitive behavioural therapy are really expanding, and these can be therapist-supported apps such as CBTI Coach or a fully automated CBTI program such as Sleepio or ShutEye. Whilst these automated programs have been shown to be effective in randomised clinical trials, Some of the data that we're really interested in for these resources is about adherence and attrition. So in the real world, outside of a clinical trial setting, how many people that actually start this type of program continue with it and get right through to the end? Uh, Janet Chung from University of Sydney also spoke as part of a panel discussion in that same symposium on her research as a pharmacist looking at uh, people's preferences in how they access treatment for insomnia. And the very useful advice that she gave is when managing people with insomnia, think about why did they come and see you at this particular point in time. Understanding what's important to the patient and their illness narrative will help with customising a treatment approach for them, which in turn will help with adherence. So it was really reinforcing one of Sean Drummond's points about the importance of individualising therapy for insomnia. There are a number of sessions on sleep health and really great to see quality of research being done in Australia in this area. Amy Reynolds from the Appleton Institute had looked at what predicted whether people seek help from healthcare providers for their sleep problems. She found there were two main criteria. One was meeting the formal diagnostic criteria for insomnia. So think of that as sleep problems being sufficiently severe that they're happening regularly for three months or more and impacting on daytime functioning. The second predictor was overall poor health. So think of that as being someone with a number of comorbidities, potentially on a range of other medications. And those two factors alone counted for 44 to 58% of the variance in predicting whether people would seek help from a healthcare provider for their sleep problems. Surprisingly, other factors like age and education status really didn't impact. Moira Junger, my co-host on the Sleep Talk podcast, organised a debate on the topic of are we really sleeping less today than we used to. Whilst the debate was highly entertaining, it actually 
did a great job of summarising the data in this area. There was one side arguing that when you systematically review the data, there really isn't evidence to support the notion that we're sleeping any less. But that's hampered by lack of adequate records that really at most go back 100 years and to some extent are hampered by the fact that many of these estimates of sleep are self-reported and human beings are notoriously bad at estimating exactly how much sleep they're getting. The group arguing that we are sleeping less rather than necessarily having data to support this notion pointed to evidence of increased sleepiness in the community and some data showing that in pre-industrialised societies still that don't have access to electricity, sleep is longer than in modernised societies where electricity is freely accessible. I think this is an area that will continue to be debated, but it does show that it's not as clear-cut as what we often hear in the media that we have a sleep loss epidemic. There's no doubt that people are feeling sleepier than they have done and report that in a high proportion, but the question of whether that's due to lack of minutes of sleep is something that's still unclear. The last subject I wanted to cover is obstructive sleep apnea. Like in insomnia, there was a focus on individualising treatment for sleep apnea and in particular using a number of assessment strategies to look at the physiological characteristics of a given individual's causes for sleep apnea and then using that to target treatment. beautiful summary of that was delivered by Professor David White from Harvard University who really has done a lot of this work with Australian researchers working with him to develop techniques to identify characteristics Characteristics that contribute to sleep apnea, such as upper airway anatomy, muscle collapsibility, uh, arousal thresholds, and loop gain. After a number of years of research, this is really now coming into the practical realm. And a great paper by uh, Scott Sands that was discussed, that was published this year, outlining how, with a good nasal pressure signal on polysomnography, you can actually get a good estimate of these variables and physiologically phenotype a given individual's obstructive sleep apnea. That can give then an idea about prediction of response to non-CPAP treatments such as surgery or oral appliances and where work is going at the moment, potentially the role of medications to increase muscle activity during sleep. David White presented some interesting preliminary data on a combination of atomoxetine and oxybutynin that they're entering into phase two dose finding studies for at the moment. He's confident that in the next couple of years, using these techniques together with medications and anatomical approaches, most patients with sleep apnea may be able to be treated with a non-CPAP approach. I hope you've enjoyed this summary of the Sleep Down Under 2018 meeting from Brisbane. Subscribe to our full-length monthly podcast that I co-host with Dr Moira Junger. It's available in iTunes, Sleep Talk by Sleep Hub, or the iOS app in the iTunes store. Plan to attend next year's Sleep Down Under meeting in 2019, which will be in October in Sydney. See you there. For the A to Z of sleeping well, head to the hub, sleephub.com.au. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 